Well, shalom, everyone, and welcome to Torah Today Ministries. And this is our first in a new series called Parsha Seasonings. A parsha is a Hebrew word for portion, and as you know, the Torah is divided up into weekly portions. Uh, and each portion is studied in every synagogue around the world on each particular week that that portion is scheduled. And this week happens to be portion Chukat, which comes from Numbers chapters 19 through 21. Now, this is called Parsha Seasonings because it's not a, a full Parsha study. It's just some of the details, some of the ingredients that reveal themselves only in the Hebrew Scriptures. So um, when we do these, I'll be just taking some little nuggets of truth, some little insights that you cannot pick up from the English translations, and hopefully they will enrich your studies of God's Word. So I'm excited to start this new series, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I am enjoying preparing these. So Parsha Seasonings, uh, Chukat. Now this, I have, to, I have to give you a little background story. About 40 years ago, my father-in-law went to a used book sale up in the Cleveland area. It's a massive book sale at one of the universities. And I came across this slender two-volume set called The Hebrew Teacher by Hyman E. Golden. And this is before I even started studying Hebrew, but God must have known I would need these two books to share with you today. And um, imagine my surprise when I got them home and began to explore them. And on pages eight and nine of volume one, I came across this two-page spread. Now take a look at this. I'm not gonna go into a lot of detail, but what we have here are two pages that show the Hebrew alphabet. In the left-hand column, we have the letters of the alphabet, and they continue on to the second page. So here they go, Aleph through Tav. Next to that, you have the cursive form, a little faster way to print the Hebrew. Next to that, you have the, the sound that that letter makes. Beside that, you have the name of the letter. And these names are all Hebrew words in themselves, and then this gives you how that name is spelled in English. So the first letter, Aleph, that's how its name is spelled in Hebrew. That's how it's pronounced in English. And then you have what the letter pictures. And the letter Aleph pictures an ox head. But then you have this last column, which gives you the numeric value. Each Hebrew letter has a numeric value. They go one through 10, and then it goes 20, down through 100, and then the last few letters go 200, 300, 400. Now, what I want to draw your attention to, and we'll come back to these numerical values at the end of the lesson, but I want us to look at the very last entry on this page, and that is the letter Tav, letter Tav. It makes a T sound, and it means a cross. Now imagine my surprise when I discovered that the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet means cross. Most books on the Hebrew alphabet try to avoid this little insight, but if you do your research, you will find them admitting that this last letter means cross. Now, the reason that is so significant is because when you look at the shape of this letter, Notice that it makes the same shape 
as would have been made on the doors of the Israelites when they were in Egypt. Remember, the blood of the Passover lamb was to be put across the lintel and then on the two mezuzot, the two doorposts. So when they made the, the, the uh, when they put the blood on their doors, it would have made the shape of the letter Tov, which means cross. Now I'll let you put two and two together to see the significance of that, but uh, a little hint. Our Savior was crucified on a cross on the day of Passover because he delivered us from death to life and from slavery to freedom through his death and resurrection. Just as the blood of the Lamb uh, brought salvation and rescue to the Israelites uh, from the land of Egypt. Now, in our Torah portion, we encounter the story of the fiery serpents. Now, when our translations translate this fiery, it is a literal translation, the word seraph. So where we get the word seraphim, the angels of fire. But it wasn't because these serpents were on fire. It refers to how it felt when you got bit by one. If you've ever been stung by a bee or a wasp, you know how intensely they burn. The sensation is like fire, like, like being branded. It's a horrible feeling. But I've been, been given to understand that when you're bit by a poisonous serpent, it feels like that burning, but tenfold. It's just an intense heat. So these fiery serpents were serpents that were poisonous and they were biting the people. People were dying and God had sent them because of the rebellion and their complaints. And this is what the passage says. In verse 21, verse 7, it says, And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against Adonai and against you. Pray to Adonai that he take away the serpent. And it's singular there for some reason, but it's referring to all the serpents. But take away the serpent from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Now here is the word for serpent in Hebrew. It's the word nachash. Nachash. It's spelled Nun Chet Shin. Now try to memorize what those letters look like because we're going to see them again in a moment as part of another word. But the word for serpent used here is the word Nachash. And this is the most common word for serpent in the Hebrew scriptures. So they repent. They ask uh, Moses to pray to Adonai. They take away the serpent. So Adonai gives Moses some instructions, and this is what he says. Verses 8 and 9. And Adonai said to Moses, Make a fiery, and the word serpent is not there. It's simply implied. Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Bronze serpent is mentioned twice. Now, a little word about bronze. Uh, some translations may say copper. Some may say brass. Others may say bronze. Really doesn't make any difference. Bronze and brass are both alloys of copper. So this was some kind of copper-based metal. 
and we don't know exactly what it was, but I guess it really doesn't make any difference. So don't get too concerned if your translations disagree, copper or brass or bronze. Now, I want us to look at the Hebrew words that form the phrase bronze serpent, and here they are. Now look at this. Now on the left, we see our word nachash, nun chet shin, the word we saw just a moment ago. But look at the word for bronze, nun chet shin tav. It's nachashet. Now, when you say bronze serpent in Hebrew, it's nachash, nachashet. You put the adjective bronze after the noun nachash. Or actually, I guess they're both nouns. It's just a, a, a nachash made of nachashet, a serpent made of bronze. But look at the similarity of the two words. Nunket shin for serpent. Nunket shin tav for bronze. I don't believe in coincidences, especially when it comes to God's word, to the jots, the tittles, the letters, the spellings of the words, the alignment of the words, the order of the words. We know that these were hand-placed by God and they all have significance. Why did God make the word for bronze so very similar to the word nachash? Well, recall what that last letter means, the letter tav? It means cross. So when you make the word nachashet, bronze, you are taking a nachash, a serpent, and attaching it to a cross. So a nachash nachashet gives us a verbal picture of what Moses did. He made a serpent of brass. He put it on a pole. Now what did our Savior do? He also was lifted up and put on a pole put on a cross, put on some kind of a standard so that when people came to look at him and even today when people come to him in faith, they also can be healed. In fact, we're all familiar with John 3.16. If you were raised in church the way I was, is probably the first verse you ever had to memorize. But let's look at the two verses leading up to verse 16. Yeshua speaks and says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So in other words, just as Moses, now get the picture, just as Moses lifted up this brass, bronze serpent in the wilderness, Yeshua says, I have to be lifted up in the same way. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Did you ever stop to think what the context of John 3.16 is? The context is the story of the fiery serpent, of the Nachash Nachashet, the bronze serpent being lifted up on a standard as a, as a picture that uh, precedes and, and it pictures something that God is going to accomplish for the world through His Son, Yeshua. Now, now here's a question. If fiery serpents are the problem, how can another serpent be the solution? 
you would think that if serpents are the things that are causing the pain and death in people's lives, if you're going to make a, an animal to put up on a pole to look at, it should be some kind of an animal that kills and eats serpents. But that's not what God did. His solution was another serpent, except this one made from bronze and being lifted up on a pole. How does this prefigure our Messiah? How does this prefigure Yeshua and his crucifixion? Well, I think the answer for us is found in 2 Corinthians 5.21, where Paul writes, For our sake he, God, made him, Yeshua, to be sin. For our sake he made him to be sin. Who? The one who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. You could also translate that as he who knew no sin to be a sin offering or sin sacrifice. But I think there's a very deep thing going on here. You know, sin offerings, and for that matter, any of the animals that were sacrificed in the Levitical sacrificial system, they were never beaten ahead of time. They were never tortured. They were never ridiculed and humiliated. In fact, their deaths had to be painless. But Yeshua's was anything but painless. And I think the reason his death looks the way it did and took the form that it did is that God wanted to illustrate to us what he was doing to our sin, not just to our sins by removing them, by washing them away, but to sin itself, the thing in us that makes us sin, that yetzahurah, that rebellious heart, that thing in us that just keeps sinning. And it's as if through Messiah's crucifixion, he's showing us, I have taken the hands of sin in your life that made you do the things you didn't want to do, and I've nailed them down. They can't make you do those things anymore. He took the feet of our sin, nailed them down, so that sin cannot make us go where we don't want to go anymore. He took the thoughts, the sinful thoughts, that thing in us that produced sinful thoughts, and he pierced it with a crown of thorns to say, you don't have to think the way you did anymore. I've taken those sinful thoughts and I've punctured them. I've pierced them. I've dealt with them. You don't have to think the way you used to think. The heart of sin, the thing in me that just beat in step with lust and with, with evil desires, it was run through with a spear. So my heart does not have to beat in time with sin. The mouth of sin that would speak wicked things. It, it, we're told in the Gospels that his, his tongue was dried up. He could hardly speak. He was thirsty. And he's saying, I've dealt with that as well. In other words, the bottom line is this. Do we still sin? Yeah, we still goof up. I know I do. But it's not because I have to. It's always because I choose to. It's almost as if God has reset things so that we are like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Our sins have been taken away. We're, we're sin-free as they were. 
But like them, we sin for one reason, one reason only. We get tempted and then we choose to give in to the temptation. We can no longer say the devil made me do it or my sin nature made me do it or I couldn't help myself. Those excuses no longer apply because God has dealt with sin in our lives. So now we're put back at, at zero, a complete reset. When we sin now, it's because we choose to sin or because we're so ignorant of righteousness, we just have not learned yet. We're like infants who keep stumbling. But God wants us to grow up. And I know I have a lot of growing to do, but as I get older, as I continue to walk in discipleship and commitment to God, I do see continual victory over this sin. And it's a very convicting thought when I remind myself, if you sin here, it's because you choose to, not because you have to. Not because you've been so tempted you just can't say no. You're just choosing to rebel. You're just choosing to do what's wrong. That really helps me to choose to not do wrong. And I wanted to jump ahead to next week's Torah portion to a passage there that, that aligns with what we've just been talking about. In Numbers 23, 23, it says this, for there is no Nachash, no serpent in Jacob, no divination against Israel. Now it should be said of Jacob and Israel, what has God done? Now your translations will say um, no omen or no oracle or no divination or no uh, occult practice or curse or however your translation translates this. There's nothing that can come against Israel to bring curse upon them is what it's basically saying. But the word that's used there is our word nachash. And when we read it in light of what we've just been discussing, it's as if God is reaffirming what Paul said that we just read. For there is no serpent in Jacob. The serpent has been dealt with. One of the things that greatly troubles me when I hear my Christian friends talking is that and though I know they don't believe this, just to listen to their conversation sometimes, you'd almost think there are two gods, not just one. There's the God of righteousness, of life, and of light, our Creator and Redeemer. There's this God, yad heh vav and then Satan. And it's almost like we have two gods. Yet the Scriptures in no way paint Satan as being on the level of God he was a created being as well. He is just God's sheepdog. He is just a created being like you and me. He's no God, as much as he would like to be one, as much as he would like us to think of him as one. But in John's epistles, he tells us that the evil one cannot touch you. He can't even touch you. The only thing the enemy can do is lie. Just as a serpent only has one weapon, that's its mouth. Our enemy, Satan, has one weapon, and that's his mouth and the lies. He's the father of lies. It's the only idea he's ever come up with, the lie. And he's very effective at it. But that's the only thing he has going. He has no hands. He has no feet. He can't make us do anything. But what he can do is lie to us. And the moment we start to believe his lies, then we start to comply with his will. This is why it's so important for us to, 
as Yeshua says in John 8, to continue in his word, continue in Yeshua's word. And he says, and then you'll be my disciples indeed, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's what we need to pursue with all of our heart, soul, and mind, to love God, to love his words, to build them into our lives, and to be his disciples, and to be free, to truly walk free, not be deceived anymore. Now, there's one last thing I want to point out with uh, this. If you recall, back in that two-page spread from the book I showed you, there's a numerical value attached to each letter. And here's something that's truly amazing. Here's our word Nachash, serpent again on the left. And there are the three letters. Now I'm going to take the letters from left to right uh, as we look at their values. Shin equals 300, Chet equals 8, Nun equals 50. You add that up, you get 358. On the right is the word Mashiach, Mem, Shin, Yud, Chet. But again, we'll take the numerical values left to right. Ket is 8, Yud is 10, Shen is 300, Mem is 40. And what do they add up to? 358. In other words, the numerical value of Mashiach is exactly the same as the numerical value of Nakash, serpent. Why is this the case? Again, I don't believe in coincidences. But I think what God is trying to illustrate through this is that what Messiah accomplished for us on the cross, exactly to a T, no more or no less, exactly cancels out the work of the serpent, the work of the enemy. Messiah came to destroy the works of the enemy, John tells us. And he does it perfectly, completely, that there's not one thing the enemy can do or has done that isn't completely counteracted, counteracted by the work of Messiah. And I believe this is why Mashiach has the same numerical value as Nakash. The work of Mashiach completely cancels out the work of the serpent. That's an amazing thing. So I hope that this little Parsha seasoning, this detail that reveals itself only in the Hebrew, not in the English, will be a blessing to you as you study this portion. And even more than that, it will help you to see and understand our enemy and our own tendency to sin in a truer light and to understand we do not have to sin anymore. So let's really focus and exercise our energies in walking in righteousness and in becoming the people God wants us to be. So until next week, uh, I wish you shalom, and I will see you uh, here with the next uh, Parsha seasoning next week in our next tour portion. God bless. Until next time.